Uh, this is Michael Osterlink. Welcome to Radio. I'm happy to have a conversation today with Andrew Louts. He's a policy and government affairs manager with National Taxpayers Union. How you doing, Andrew? Good. How are you, Michael? Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Uh, you guys have a new paper out called Reforming the OCO Account, a better deal for taxpayers, watchdogs, and the military. First of all, well done. You guys always put out great material. It's good to see Thank this you. one as well. Um, before we jump into the reforms that you suggest, I think it'd be probably good for our listening and viewing audience who can't necessarily, don't, don't follow the intricacies of defense reform and know some of the language. Sure. Um, can you talk a little about the kind of the history of OCO as well as how it contextualizes it in the Budget Control Act, the BCA? The BCA, sure. <laughs> so we're actually, as you know, Michael, we're coming up on the end of the 10-year BCA cycle. Yeah. Um, the BCA or the Budget Control Act uh, was passed back in 2011. Um, it was a, a, a compromise uh, between President Obama and House Republicans, who who at the time uh, controlled the House of Representatives. And what it essentially did was established spending caps uh, for both defense and non-defense discretionary spending uh, for 10 fiscal years. Um, now, um, uh, you know, the deal wasn't perfect. Uh, it was uh, too, still too much government spending for, for the likes of limited government groups like NTU, but it was definitely a step in the right direction when it comes to uh, sort of uh, bringing Congress to heel, uh, for, for lack of a better term. Now, unfortunately, as you and I both well know, uh, Congress has violated those discretionary spending caps again and again and again over the last 10 years so that the original caps uh, that were agreed to uh, don't really have much force um, anymore. But beyond even the spending caps, uh, there's uh, there's spending that is designated as emergency spending that doesn't really, where, where the spending caps don't apply. Uh, and that's where the Overseas Contingency Operations account uh, or OCO account comes in for the Department of Defense. Uh, mostly the Department of Defense, uh, Department of State also receives some OCO funding. Now, OCO was originally designed to uh, mostly fund contingency operations overseas, as the designation suggests, in primarily in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Uh, now, what's happened over uh, the last 10 years, and particularly over the last six or seven years, is that uh, more and more that OCO account has actually uh, been stuffed with priorities and projects that should belong in the regular budget. And this is a failure of both the Pentagon and of Congress. Um, on, on the one hand, the Pentagon has delayed efforts to uh, update their criteria of what constitutes a contingency operation, even as the battlefield has dramatically changed overseas. And on Congress's part, they've continued to allocate OCO levels well, well beyond what uh, even the Pentagon says they need for the actual contingency operations in question. So um, that's kind of a, a quick history. I don't know if you wanted to cover any more, but that's actually oh, really well done <laughs> in terms of quick history. Uh, and, and one of the things that uh, we like to call from the outside uh, OCO is a slush fund. Yeah. Because as you've already acknowledged, that's where the, you know, the Pentagon kind of puts everything that it doesn't want to include in the base budget because it, it, it can pretend like it's keeping being fiscally responsible and yet blowing it uh, through OCO. And it's important to note historically, because there's a lot of people, especially on our side of the argument or aisle who argue that, you know, the military has been decimated. It doesn't have enough money, blah, 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 blah. And in fact, that's completely not true, even with a base budget, historically speaking, let alone adding OCA to that. 
those arguments right. are specious. Exactly. Yeah. So let's yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Please. Yeah. No, please, please. Oh, no. And I, and I was just going to say, and uh, you may have been planning to, to cover this, but but just to give your listeners a sense of the, the scale of OCO, uh, and there's more details in this report. Uh, over the last 20 years, Congress has uh, appropriated over $2 trillion uh, to either emergency designations, which is what these were before the OCO account existed, or in the last 10 plus years, the OCO account. And um, they have 77 billion more planning to come in fiscal year 2021 per last year's bipartisan budget act. Um, now, certainly some of this $2 trillion, um, I think most people would agree is, is necessary, right? For uh, the need to replace uh, equipment and um, you know, uh, fund other priorities for our troops overseas uh, when, when, when they're uh, you know, conducting dangerous missions in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, also, some of the um, emergency needs immediately after 9-11 would certainly fall in that category. But as we talked about, the increasing trend of stuffing uh, priorities and projects that belong in the regular budget, uh, that has added up to tens of billions of dollars, if not hundreds of billions of dollars over the last several fiscal years alone. And that is where you see uh, the particular slushiness of the OCO account. Exactly. And that's, that's an important distinction to make that we, we at one time were fighting wars and we needed to have the money to go towards those things. And the more recent past, we're not, we don't have the huge presence we had in Iraq and that's Afghanistan, right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you have 10 Oak reforms. Mm -hmm. If you'd be okay with you, we just kind of walk through them. The, you have sure. first many are actually recommendations for the fiscal year 2021 NDAA. Uh, first one is reestablishing the wartime contracting commission. Yeah, so um, this is actually uh, a commission that existed. It was initially created by the fiscal year 2008 NDAA, but it closed its doors in September 2011, so, so roughly three years later. Uh, during just its three years of existence, the wartime contracting commission uncovered between $31 billion and $60 billion of taxpayer dollars lost to waste, fraud, and abuse through wartime contracting in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, there's a bipartisan bill from Representative Stephen Lynch, a Democrat out of Massachusetts, and Representative Jody Heiss, a Republican out of Georgia, that would reestablish this uh, commission, NTU, um, you know, helped uh, sort of roll out the introduction of this last year, and we're hoping that it can be included as a pretty, pretty simple amendment uh, in the fiscal year 2021 NDA. Let's reestablish this commission. It's, it's a relatively low cost to actually run the commission, and of course, the, the, um, the long-term savings from that commission in terms of what they point out as wasteful practices far, far outweighs any marginal cost to actually reestablish it. And, and it's so important because if you just track the cigar from Afghanistan and you read their reports, some of the disturbingly wasteful spending, I mean, it's clearly, clearly wasteful spending specific mm -hmm. to Afghanistan. And that's just Afghanistan and talking tens of millions of dollars not even the tens of billions of dollars that you just referenced that it's already been acknowledged and there's gotta be a lot more. Of course. Yeah. Uh, your yeah. second one is to ensure that OMB and DOD finish work on revised criteria for DOD's OCO budget. Talk about the criteria. Yeah. So these criteria, criteria were first developed by OMB and the Pentagon in 2010. Now, um, a 2017 government accountability office or GAO report recommended that 
DOD and OMB get to work on updating that criteria because that hadn't been done in seven years. Uh, the Department of Defense agreed with the GAO's recommendation. They said, yes, we should work on updating these criteria. Uh, it is 2020 now. And uh, I checked in, I actually emailed the uh, GAO team responsible for, for this report uh, just to ask them because I hadn't seen any evidence in, in public facing documents that DOD and OMB have done some work on, on this updated criteria. And I wanted to email the GAO team just to be absolutely sure that I wasn't missing some behind the scenes work. And they confirmed to me from what they've heard, there's no work on this updated criteria. So we think now might be the time for Congress to give OMB and DOD a bit of a nudge on this. And I'll explain real quick why that's so important. Although I referenced it earlier, we, we both did. The, the nature of the battlefield has changed dramatically uh, uh, since this criteria was developed in 2010. When, when the criteria were developed in 2010, um, uh, the, uh, ISIL, the, you know, the Islamic State barely existed uh, as a terrorist group. And now a lot of um, Oko, uh, a, a lot that's in the Oko count is going towards that fight. Uh, and, and so it's clear that DOD and OMB not only need to update that criteria for the first time in 10 years, but that as long as Oko does exist, and of course we hope it doesn't exist for too much longer, but as long as it does exist, um, that it should be, uh, that those criteria should be regularly updated. Speaking of Oko, hopefully not existing in the near future, another one of your recommendations is require DOD to DOD to give Congress and OMB a plan for transitioning all existing enduring costs funded through OCO to the base budget. Talk a little bit about that one. That's right. So um, as we discussed a little earlier, one of the key um, problems with the OCO account is that um, a larger and larger portion of that account uh, is being used to fund so-called enduring requirements. These are requirements that are expected to exist well beyond the uh, limited time and uh, scope of, of contingency operations overseas. Um, and DOD actually pledged in fiscal year 2016, uh, towards the end of the Obama administration, to create a plan for transitioning all of these enduring costs out of the OCO account and back into the base budget over the course of four fiscal years. Uh, but they never, and this is where Congress comes in, they never actually submitted um, that plan because lawmakers passed a new bipartisan budget act that raised the OCO levels to such a level that DOD could continue to stuff enduring requirements into the OCO account. So Congress, you know, DOD was actually ready to do some work on this and Congress kind of uh, uh, took the wind out of their sails. And, and I'm sure there are some folks uh, over in the Pentagon who were more than happy that that was the case. Um, despite, you know, and, and I'm sure there are also folks at the Pentagon who are interested in, in reforming OCO, but um, this has pushed that project back back four years now. And we think, again, in the upcoming NDAA, Congress can give a nudge uh, for, for DOD to, to uh, finally get to work on this transition plan. And that, it's a nice segue to the next one, which require DOD budgets to break out enduring costs funded through OCO. Sure. So, so this and, and uh, I, I uh, suppose the next um, uh, option we'll go through. Uh, NTU actually can't take take full credit for. Uh, we, we we have to credit our friends at the Project on Government Oversight or POGO. Michael, you know them well, uh, and I'm sure you've had some of their experts uh, uh, on uh, your podcast before. Yep. So, POGO um, POGO brought these next uh, this option and the next one to us uh, a couple weeks ago, and we think that they're they're they would be strong inclusions in the next NDAA. Uh, requiring DOD budgets to break out during costs funded through OCO. So, um, you know, 
as as long as OCO continues to include these these enduring uh, requirements that that we find so problematic, we think that DoD should at least be required to um, uh, break them out in their annual budget request to Congress. Now they did this for fiscal year 2020 and for fiscal year 2021. That's encouraging, uh, but we think that Congress should codify this practice into law so that no matter who is in charge of of uh, submitting the congressional budget justification for the Department of Defense next fiscal year and the fiscal year after that, that they're still uh, adhering to this requirement and that they're breaking out those costs, which are helpful for taxpayers and for watchdogs like NTU and POGO. Nice shout out for POGO. And let's call out Mandy particularly, because I'm sure it's Mandy's idea for, for the next one as well. It Require was. Require <laughs> five-year projections of, of all OCO costs. That's right. So, um, you know, uh, it's hard, of course, to to project into the future, especially when it comes to contingency operations, because the, the very definition of that would, would seem to suggest that you can't um, predict, you can't reliably predict um, uh, what those are going to be. But uh, we think that one way to mitigate this is that we could allow DOD to give confidence levels of some sort in its five-year spending estimates so that you know we're not uh, holding them to an exact dollar figure uh, uh, in their estimates, but we are holding them to a range. Um, we think that some effort by DOD on this front, again, breaking out these expected costs over five years, um, is, is at minimum what they owe taxpayers, uh, even, if, even if conditions on the ground change in that time period. You have one more as a possible amendment to, uh, idea as a short-term fix is prohibit OCO and GWAT global war on terror. Um, spending on base activities in the state and foreign operations appropriations bill? Right. So, so as I, I mentioned earlier, although a vast majority of OCO funding goes to the Department of Defense, and that's we, where we are really focusing our efforts, there is a smaller portion of the OCO account that's been dedicated to uh, State Department and USAID programs. Now, um, what's concerning about this is that OCO has made up OCO funds have made up a larger and larger portion and at one time made up a larger and larger portion of the entire international affairs budget. Uh, the peak was fiscal year 2017 when OCO funding uh, uh, made up 36% of, wow. of the international affairs budget. Uh, it's down to a more sustainable level of around 15% uh, in fiscal year 2019, but it's hovered at, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20% over the last five uh, to six fiscal years. We think that that's a sign that th this is a continuing abuse, um, yeah. that, uh, that things need to change. And, and um, there are some lawmakers out there that unfortunately appear intent on using OCO funds for base international affair activities, things that belong in the regular budget. This is the same problem that's been happening rampantly at the DOD, and we want to prevent that from uh, being the case with, with state funding as well. Amen. <laughs> so those are some of the shorter term possible fixes through an amendment process for NDAA. You also have some more longer term reforms. If it's okay to walk through some of those. For sure. Um, and, and I will say, so some of these, um, and the paper sort of goes into this distinction a bit, some of these are mutually exclusive where they can be done in tandem. Uh, yeah. Some of these require some, some, some choice choices uh, from lawmakers. Um, we actually, uh, despite what I mentioned earlier in terms of, you know, we, we would like to see, see a day in the near future where OCO no longer exists. We, we actually, at NTU, we think that um, it's potential, uh, there's potential that uh, a, a much, much reduced OCO account could exist in the future. Um, I, I don't think that is a, an absolute red line for us. Um, we think that there are better options out there, but 
you know, um, the uh, lawmakers are going to have to make a have to make a choice whether to retain OCO in some format, hopefully much reduced from from its current levels, or return to the emergency spending practices of the past. And I'll get that into that uh, in a second. So I just wanted to make that distinction right off the bat. But one mutually exclusive option uh, in terms of the long term reform options are uh, having Congress and um, uh, DOD actually enforce the existing definition of a contingency operation. And uh, again, can't take full credit for this one. This is actually, um, you know, uh, our friend uh, at Taxpayers for Common Sense, Wendy Jordan, uh, is, is, is a proponent of this, I believe. Um, and uh, I won't read out the whole, you know, U.S. code definition here, but uh, Congress could I think reduce OCO spending over time if they limit OCO appropriations to needs that meet the specific de definition of a contingency operation. That would clear out most of the base and the enduring requirements that are currently stuffed into OCO. Um, of course, one concern with this option is that depending on how you define contingency operation, especially in, in current law, or if that, that definition is amended by Congress, it could remain broad enough that either appropriators or agency officials could game the system to continue spending large amounts of money. Uh, I the can't imagine they'd do that. <laughs> There's been no gaming of the system ever in Congress, <laughs> ever, right? Ever. <laughs> uh, your next uh, longer term reform is institute more aggressive caps on OCO funding with yeah. a declining cap year to year until OCO is nominal or zero. That's right. So I actually, um, I have to uh, give a shout out here to uh, Senate Budget Committee Chairman Mike Enzi uh, and, and our dear friend Nan Swift uh, uh, is, is one of the uh, best team members at the Senate Budget Committee. Uh, Senator Enzi's uh, budget resolution released last year would have provided a total of $130 billion for OCO in fiscal years 20 and 21 but then zero for the next three fiscal years. Um, there are other budget resolutions and past NDAA amendments from uh, Republicans as conservative as Rand Paul to progressives as liberal as Barbara Lee and Ilan Omar who uh, have proposed either uh, cutting or zeroing out or phasing down the OCO account now. Um, from NTU's perspective, I think we're uh, somewhat agnostic. We're, we're not military experts, of course, so, so we're somewhat agnostic as to um, exactly how OCO is phased down. It's clear with all the base and enduring requirements stuffed into OCO that it can't be, it can't exist at current levels and it has to be much lower. Um, how you do that and how long you stretch that time horizon, I think is, is up for legitimate debate. Uh, again, the NZ resolution uh, would have done it over two years. The uh, Steve Womack resolution from the 115th Congress uh, a couple of years ago would have drawn it down over, I think, about seven or eight years. So there, there's room for debate here. But, um, you know, uh, as we look towards either having OCO, you know, exist as a different kind of account in the future or be replaced with something else. Um, or just be replaced with emergency spending when it's necessary. Uh, we think that this is sort of the, the interim option to face it down over time so that the pain of losing OCO for uh, military leaders or for stakeholders who rely on those funds is less painful uh, than just sort of pulling the rug out from under them in, in one or two years. And that's actually a great segue to your last two suggestions. <laughs> um, Longer term, one is require DOD to establish an OCO reserve funded through congressional appropriations year to year for use on actual contingency operations. Actual in quotes, actual. Uh, I'll <laughs> add that in. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, yeah, and, sure. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, please, please. Oh, so so this is, and and I think you were about to allude to this, Michael. I, this is sort of the um, trade-off here. This is these are the two yeah. options where yeah. um, I, I think lawmakers have to choose one or the yeah. other. Um, uh, the first option is is a sort of establishing an ochre reserve, a rainy day fund of sorts, and and this is I think a concept familiar to most Americans. Many Americans have a rainy day fund for their households. Many state budgets have a rainy day fund, and in fact uh, they are drawing on that rainy day fund now because it has oh, been. Yeah pouring in our country between COVID-19 and, uh, and uh, the, the resulting economic impacts. So, um, so rainy day funds are a valuable thing, whether for a family or, or an individual or a state. Uh, we think that they should be more, uh, more frequent at the federal level. We've advocated for rainy day funds or, and similar setups for uh, some other federal programs. We believe that it could exist for OCO, where if you have can yes the pentagon is going to have contingency operations they're going to have needs overseas that they can't anticipate year to year congress should set them up with a a limited rainy day fund of sorts um that uh that it appropriates money to and that dod saves year to year uh and hopefully let's grow over time because hopefully most years we don't require expensive contingency operations and when an emergency does arise for the military they can draw on that reserve fund rather than, again, creating this sort of slush fund system um, uh, that we see under OCO. And then you have a second possible option, um, which was remove OCO GWAT designation and GWAT Global War on Terror, forcing Congress to instead fund operations through supplemental appropriations and or emergency designations. Right, and this is probably the the uh, most radical option, uh, for lack of a better term, and, and we don't use the word radical too much around NTU, but, but um, this would, I think it's important for, for listeners to realize as they're thinking about the overseas contingency operations account that this account didn't exist 10 years ago. Uh, even the global war on terror designation didn't exist until 2004. Uh, and, and that's several years, of course, after the events of 9-11. Uh, the America's immediate military needs after 9-11 were actually met just through supplemental uh, or emergency appropriations passed by Congress. It's how they fund uh, you know, responses to hurricanes and other natural disasters. And we think that it's certainly possible for, again, all of DOD's uh, anticipated priorities to be uh, funded through the regular budget and to have those priorities compete against one another, both in the, in the eyes of military leaders and in the eyes of congressional leaders, also in the eyes of, of taxpayers and advocates, uh, while, again, leaving open the option of when there are true immediate emergency contingencies contingency needs for the military, having Congress um, get its act together, for lack of a better term, and, mm -hmm. and pass some emergency spending. Uh, uh, what we gonna, sorry, what are we going to say? No, I'm just going to, you know, it, it seems to me that, that that last option, you know, having Congress come together and actually have to appropriate the money for an emergency, actually, as a representative of a constitutional republic, might be the best option. Then you actually have debates in Congress. Uh, Theoretically, That's idealistically. <laughs> uh, it's know, a foreign I, concept, right? <laughs> I know, I know. I know. I, you know I, I'm just a bill. I'm only a bill. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, idealistically, it'd be happening. But, you know, at least theoretically, they'd actually have to debate the spending yeah. of this taxpayer money on whatever they think is the emergency. That's right. And and um, to, to talk for a second, kind of try to tie this bow around um, the work 
you and I both do, Michael, as part of the, the Pentagon budget campaign. I think, um, I think the campaign members, both those on the left and those on the right, those center left, center right, what brings us together is acknowledging that uh, the military doesn't need to operate at its current budget level, level, whether you're considering just OCO or OCO plus the regular budget or just the regular budget, that there are smart and responsible reductions that can be made in consultation with military leaders so that we're not harming, uh, putting troops in harm's way or impacting the readiness and, and safety of the American people. Uh, and I think reforming the OCO account, drawing this down, ending the slush fund practices is really the first major step uh, that lawmakers and that military leaders can take to uh, right-sizing the military for the 21st century. Uh, and so that was sort of the, the impetus for, for this report. We think that this is the best place to start. And, uh, and you know, uh, if, and, if and when all of our hard work and the work of our, our colleagues in, in the campaign gets... Um, uh, get some results uh, with, with OCO, uh, we'll turn to the, the regular budget and, and the, the wastes and, and the improper accounting practices and uh, improper financial management issues that had plagued the Pentagon outside of the OCO account. From your lips to God's ears, <laughs> maybe so. So if uh, people are interested in actually reading the report, reform the OCO account, a better deal for taxpayers, watchdogs in the military, where can they find your report? Sure, they can go to ntu.org uh, and uh, I'll, I'll make sure to share the link with you after I, you are um, uh, one of the most active people I know on social media and that's a compliment. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. And, and, uh, and, and so uh, I know you've already shared it with your followers, but uh, we can certainly give them uh, the opportunity to check out the report again. I also want to give you an opportunity because you, you do a lot of really good left and right work, a lot of transparency work. And I believe you guys also just had a report just came out within this last year um, with, um, I'm trying to think of the center left group. Um, uh, U.S. Public Interest Research Group. U.S. Perg. U.S. Perg. Yeah. Which, if I remember correctly, does also include some reforms to the Department of Defense as That's well right. as other programs as well. The that's right. So, um, so that's uh, so that's a report. It's called the Common Ground Report, and uh, we've actually had a few iterations of it. It's been a couple of years, and and pardon me for not knowing the last edition of the report off the top of my head. But uh, my colleague Damian Brady at NTU Foundation um, uh, partnered with the folks over at USPER to uh, identify several hundred billion dollars of of again really low hanging fruit. Fruit to reduce the deficit, uh, you know, wasteful practices that both a center left group and a center right group can agree on. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, we hope that lawmakers and Hill offices can can sort of turn to, to those reform options as some of the most immediate and best available to them uh, in terms of achieving some deficit reduction. I think that's particularly important, uh, given that Congress has spent $3 trillion over the last several months. Certainly plenty of, of people would acknowledge that uh, federal government needed to spend uh, an extraordinary amount of money to, to head off some of the worst impacts of, of this pandemic and the resulting economic recession. But at some point in the future, Congress will need to get serious again about deficit reduction. And, and we think that the Common Ground Report is a great way to start. And by the way, uh, half of the total uh, recommended cuts uh, in the report come from the Department of Defense. Excellent. So are you trying to say that there's no magical tree in the backyard that they just print money from called the Federal Reserve and they just, <laughs> just won't go there. We'll say, say that for another conversation. That's another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, where can people find NTU and then you specifically on, on social media, Twitter? Sure. Uh, so you can follow NTU on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Twitter handle is at NTU. It's pretty easy. Uh, I am at Andrew underscore Louts. That's a L-A-U-T as in Tango, Z as in Zulu. Awesome. Andrew, great to see you. Great work. Great to see you, Michael. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. You too.